Ethereum allows developers to run decentralized applications. But the tooling for building and managing these decentralized applications is immature. Experienced software engineers have difficulty getting started with writing Ethereum applications because the stack of tools is so unfamiliar and different than traditional software tools. Whether or not Ethereum itself succeeds, developers in the future will probably be building some decentralized applications. We will be treating money as a first-class citizen on the internet, and architecting software that transfers financial value as easily as we transmit JavaScript today. Web3 will be a world in which many more software applications will be possible. As we move towards Web3, many new tools will be built. Web2 was the result of Ruby on Rails, Amazon Web Services, the iPhone. There were so many other software tools that made it easier to deploy web servers and consume internet services. In the world of Web2, we saw innovations like Airbnb and Uber and Netflix. It's hard to pick one specific technology that enabled these kinds of companies. And so in the world of Web3, we will see new types of gig economy applications, sharing economy platforms, content companies, social networks. These new applications will arrive gradually as the tooling improves, and they'll make it easier for developers to hack together businesses and side projects and build on cryptocurrencies. Brian Soule is the founder of ETHSimple, a company that makes tools for Ethereum developers and other Web3 application developers. Brian joins the show to talk about the state of cryptocurrencies, the tooling that developers have access to, and his company ETHSimple. We cover high-level ideas such as Bitcoin maximalism. We also talk about more technical areas of the Ethereum ecosystem, such as the Ethereum name service. Brian was also the first person that I ever worked for, so we have a bit of a personal relationship, and it was really fun talking to him. I have a lot of respect for him, as you will you will hear in the show, because I have a hard time working for people. Brian was somebody I was able to work for, so I hope you enjoy this episode with Brian Soule. Brian Soul, you are the founder of ETH Simple. You are also the first person that I ever worked for. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Happy to be here. So, I want to start off by talking about internet money and what you're working on with ETH Simple. And eventually, we'll talk a little bit about the past because I think you and I were working together from kind of an early age. But in terms of talking about the present, internet money. In the early days of the internet, there were ideas around being able to pay people through the browser. And this is kind of the same idea that has gradually come to fruition with cryptocurrencies, and I've reported on this stuff as much as possible. Why didn't that happen back in the 90s? Why didn't we have internet money back in the 90s? I think that's a great question. In my opinion, I, I believe it's because we didn't have a truly trustless notion of like a distributed ledger. Some of your listeners are probably familiar with distributed ledger technology. It really comes from a, a cynical perspective of game theory and an evaluation of what the worst actors can and will do because that incentive will always incent people to take advantage of the system. So a distributed ledger solves that problem. And that's why I think Satoshi kind of created 
stage one of this open sourcing of money in the application layer that we're seeing take place over the next five to 10 years. With Ethereum, there was the second community that developed significant network effects and significant adoption. More recently, there's been some skepticism of of Ethereum. There's been some skepticism of the multi-cryptocurrency vision. Are you a maximalist in any regard? Or do, you have, do you have any, any uh, affiliation with Bitcoin maximalism or Ethereum maximalism? I'm not a maximalist. I mean, I signed up for a Coinbase account in like 2011. I saw the, the thing on Hacker News when someone bought a pizza for like 20,000 Bitcoin or whatever it was. I always have been interested in in uh, Bitcoin, but the thing that really piqued my interest was when Ethereum came out and you could actually program on top of on top of it. That opened up the possibility for like this distributed application stack where you can have software that can run in a transparent way. You can see all of the logic that goes into it and uh, it can be you can trust it 100 percent because there's nothing left to choice, which is in contrast to the existing kind of like web web two conventions where you have uh, like a Rails server or some private server that creates apis you most likely don't know what's going on behind the scenes and you just have, kind of have to trust that they're doing nice things with your data which of course a lot of people aren't these days uh, so i think there's like this cambrian explosion of all kinds of experiments in different blockchains some bitcoin maximalists are sympathetic to the view that all technology will eventually come back to be incorporated in Bitcoin itself. But I I think for, for certain reasons, there are trade-offs that just can't be made by Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is, is great. I love Bitcoin. I love that they kind of have the store of value first mover thing. But I think in terms of executing the computing layer, it the, com- the community probably won't rally around creating like efficient Turing completeness. So I do believe there's room at long term for all kinds of interesting blockchains to come out. So and that makes it more entertaining for folks like us. What you said about Bitcoin not being a good Turing complete system, couldn't you say that about assembly language? Like assembly language is not a great Turing complete system to work with, but it's it's comprehensive enough to be used. I mean, can't, couldn't you just build second layer solutions on top of Bitcoin that would just sort of look at Bitcoin like assembly language? I mean, that's a valid perspective. Some say that it's kind of a requirement for things like exchanges that so you implement something like sharding for Ethereum that will will let you persist state in a distributed but fast way. State channels would be great for things like games and anything that doesn't need a universal set of state. Bitcoin just doesn't seem to like uh, have the uh, ability to adopt rapid things like uh like sharding and stuff like that. And I think, I actually think Bitcoin's, I I think it's great the way it is. They have so much security based on all the mining that's going into it. It would be extremely difficult to 51% attack Bitcoin right now. So that's a valid perspective. And I I think there's going to be so much creativity going into layer two applications. So potentially Bitcoin could be this kind of like universal Merkle root of security that, yeah. So we'll, we'll see. There's just, there's a lot of creative chaos going into it right now. And there's a lot of like developer and uh, financial economics that are going into it. So let's stay tuned. Uh, When, when 
sharding is coming. We've heard of that. We, we hear that in Ethereum. Uh, when sharding does uh, land this year, as they're saying, it'll be really interesting to see how developers, like existing applications benefit from that speed. Because as a, as a developer right now, it's an interesting UX problem to sit there and and think about like if if a user that has never used Ethereum before comes in and they query a contract and they have to wait for a central blockchain to to clear the transaction, how do you like convey that to the user? Is that too much of a hurdle? And part of what we're doing with eSimple is enhancing the user experience by creating uh, a domain that points to their wallet, so you don't have to share a hexadecimal address, right? So. Um, We'll sit and we'll observe, and uh, I think uh, we may be in a little bit of the trough in, in the financial markets, but I think creatively things are just getting started. So it's going to be it's going to be a very interesting time. Yeah. Okay. So completely agree with with the coal creative destruction thing, and just like we'll we'll see on the second layer solutions. But uh, so on the Ethereum front, sharding. So I've done some shows about sharding and sharding clients and Casper. I found these things hard to understand, and there was that there was a post by a guy named uh, Tour de Mister a couple weeks ago that a lot of people were paying attention to because he's a you know he's a crypto influencer people that has I think a fund, and I've heard other podcasts with him, and he's just a very smart, sensible guy, and in most of the the things I've heard him say, and he had a post that was fairly critical of the Ethereum community, not in like a insulting kind of way just just listing like kind of some some facts and some some anecdotes about kind of the development pace and perhaps the the over complexity uh, perhaps the design strategies of things like casper and sharding so you as somebody who is building a business that is related to ethereum do you feel like you need to have a close understanding of the pace at which something like sharding or Casper is moving? Because you said like it's going to happen later this year. Do you actually believe that? Do you do you even have a sense for how fast it needs to move, or like where in the development cycle it is? Because for me, like I'm, I have I have li- literally no idea what the progress is. Yeah, I think one of the pieces of value I bring as like a product director for my company is evaluating where is the most developer excitement in the ecosystem. Um, and I think developer interest is kind of a leading in, leading indicator for where we should invest in creating tooling for them uh, to build distributed applications. I think Ethereum still right now is the leader for that. There's I have co-office with the Lightning folks, and I think there's a lot of excitement around Lightning, and I think that's very cool. Like part part of my kind of my focus is on user experience. So what I really bring to the table is like evaluating how do you look at an existing like a normal Web two user. How do you think about how do you empathize with what they're thinking when they encounter crypto for the first time? How do we make it easy for them? Is there some way we can abstract away like opening? Um, like a Web3 injection tool, like getting a browser extension like MetaMask or something like that. Is there a way we can kind of bootstrap that to get people on quicker? Is there a way we can get them to their aha moment sooner to where they're just playing around with crypto and just having fun? I think that's one of our main goals. So um, in terms of the scaling features, there's enough of a forcing function that this will come along. It's like something I'm a little bit optimistic about is like humans traveling to Mars. They 
we've got this forcing function with interplanetary travel going through cosmic radiation will might like provide a forcing function for humanity to like cure like entropy in in dna so like if you're being bombarded with radiation if people are constantly traveling back between planets and we've got to say how do we retain the original state of your your genome how do we capture that data set and rejuvenate humans to their younger self to reduce aging and damage like i think I think we've got the exact same thing in crypto. Like all these people have a, a, a need to send money across borders to create trustless, free and open open applications, and it, it's just a matter of time until like y- you can get Visa scale and you can go beyond that. Bitcoin could be the core root node. Like Ethereum could be Ethereum could be the big number two. We'll we'll have to wait and see. But uh, regardless of what happens, we're going to be there building the absolute best tooling for name services and uh, making it super easy for for normal folks to come in and, and like have a great time, as well as enhance their lives playing around with crypto, having a sovereign store of value, and all that good stuff. Okay, with you on the long game, and I think doubling down on your product expertise and your product development leadership as opposed to getting down in the weeds and trying to figure out where Casper is or where sharding is or where debates between core Bitcoin infrastructure people and core Ethereum infrastructure people, you know, who scored points on Twitter today, that's probably less important for your professional, you know, success than actually thinking about, you know, the product and and kind of your own durable skills and and the the durable skills that your company can develop. And we'll get into ETH Simple and what your business actually does. But I want to start with just in order to get there, I want to talk a little bit more about the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, and and give give some context. So first of all, sending ether. We've done a lot of shows about Bitcoin. We've done some shows about Ethereum. Why do people need to send ether to each other? Well, I mean, take one example. Last week we had an investor. He's like, "Looks great. Let's uh, let's do it. Where should I send the money?" And I said, "Just send it to ethsimple.eth." And like ten minutes later, I get a transaction confirmation all right, your money's sent. And that was it. I didn't have to share a hexadecimal address. Uh, I didn't have to share like a QR code or anything. So investing, like, you know, investments, buying coffee, like paying for ferries, potentially. We'll see how productization comes along for things like mortgages and advanced things like that. Uh, But um, the question is, why wouldn't people want to send crypto to each other? Like you, your followers may be familiar with Maker, which created a stablecoin called Dai, which is really interesting. They basically created a distributed organization that has an incentive to peg the price of the dollar to Dai, or vice versa. If the price isn't pegged to the dollar, then the DAO participants get penalized. So they have this strong incentive, and it's worked perfectly so far. It's gone through a lot of stress tests. Obviously, going through the bear market, there's been a lot of uh, drawbacks and this completely distributed, trustless organization of random people has performed perfectly. So that's just, uh, you know, one example. But like as engineers and as product people, you think about what can I make to make people's lives better? And the most interesting, one of the more interesting things about the kind of the open source Web3 convention is like, 
how can I do the same thing, but involve other people? How can I make a protocol based on this? It's kind of like when you were a kid on the playground and you were like, I'm, I'm inventing a game like, all right, no one can touch the ground. The ground's lava. And if everyone's like, oh, that's a fun game. All right. We're going to walk around on tables and monkey bars and stuff. If you can like go out and create a fun game for people to play, they'll play with you. And, uh, you know, you might, you might start something interesting like a distributed domain system or like a distributed hedge fund or something cool. If your idea is not so great, then, uh, you know, people won't want to play. They'll be like, oh, I'm not playing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. How do you... Because your rules are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Make up some interesting games. We've got all this experience building user interfaces and building cool products. How do you like add a little bit of humanity to that? How do you add a little bit, bit of game theory? Make something in this new open source trustless world that we're all uh, working in. And exchanging value is core to that. Exchanging value is core to most games that are worth playing and having primitives for doing that. That's why we need Ether. That's why we need to be able to transfer Ether from one person to another. Yeah, exactly. I think the crux of the value transfer is you can't have games without stake. If you like, you can't protect against civil account attacks if you don't have stake. Like, if you just have a game where anyone can query an activity unlimited number of times, they're going to do that and they're going to kill you. They're going to DDoS your game. So, value stake and value transfer is core to creating anything on these systems. Without like Ether and Bitcoin having value, we wouldn't have this. Maybe that's one of the more less. Uh, well thought causes of all this uh, web three activity i don't know what do you think well, uh, sorry what's the question uh it's the fact that people have skin in the game one of the one of the unappreciated causes of of the crypto revolution i mean i think it's definitely core to it well there's like skin in the game on on a bunch of different levels you know it's like on the level of um, you know people buying your token and you know people who have started something and then issued themselves tokens that are only worth money if the protocol does well although most of those token issuances they they set up schemes where they can make money even if the token doesn't do well or at least those were the schemes that were coming out last year but let's let's talk more about the the nuts and bolts. So, if I want to send ether to somebody, I need to know that person's address. What are the problems with the addressing system? Like compare it to PayPal, for example, where all I need to know is somebody's email. That's pretty easy. I know a lot of people's emails. I know most of the people that I would want to send money to, I know their email. So it's pretty easy for me to send money over email. Like other people, I can just send money over SMS. I think I can do that with Venmo, maybe. But what about with, with Ethereum? What's the payment transfer system like in Ethereum? The initial way was someone sends you, I don't know, I forget how many digits it is, like 32 digits. You send them a hexadecimal string. So it's a lengthy string to basically say that there's more strings than there are like atoms in the universe or something like that. Um, it's a long hex string that is basically impossible to memorize. And yeah, you basically have to share that. Some people package them into QR codes to make them a little bit more digestible. But um, yeah, basically you, you send that to somebody over a text or an email. They'll like send a, a test transfer like maybe like a dollar or something to make sure it works. And then you send it again. It's a little bit, it was a little bit delicate. Part of the initial vision of Ethereum was we'll create a, a distributed domain system, which 
I think we'll get a little, little bit more into later. But um, yeah, that's how it happens now. It's uh, the same way with Bitcoin. Is this analogous to DNS records where you have these numerical things that point to the actual server where something is hosted and you have this network of DNS and then over the top of it you have actual website addresses that people enter into and those website addresses get aliased to DNS addresses so that we have a better user experience. You can go to facebook.com instead of 151.256.34.715. You know, you can actually enter human readable addresses. So the Ethereum had a vision for having the human readable addresses for addressing wallets or addressing other areas of value that would overlay this lower level wallet addressing system. Yes, that's exactly right. I was very young at the time, but I assume people would share IP addresses to uh, visit each other's blogs or like send each other email addresses or send each other emails over like ARPANET whatever it was at the time. It's exactly the same. And domain systems have come along so much that you don't even see a notion of IP addresses in most development tools anymore. You don't actually have to like include an additional library to be like, resolve this domain to an IP address and then like wrap that in a function and then like it consumes the IP address itself. Domain systems are, are, are first class in everything. And there's no reason that this won't happen uh, to crypto. And yeah, like it's we've we've got a little bit of you know a rough edge in crypto right now because we're in uh, we're at year two of Ethereum. Bitcoin's been around for a while, but it's um, it hasn't uh, iterated quite as quickly. But I believe in the long term we'll see the same forcing functions apply, and we'll think it was amusing the day that we actually shared hexadecimal addresses. You know, hearing you say this, I'm actually realizing how big of a problem this is because, so I'm a pretty technical user. I have not tinkered with the crypto ecosystem that much, but I did go through one exercise, which was I did a Gitcoin issue. I was like, I'm going to go through the steps to do a Gitcoin issue, which is sort of like you you post bounties that are associated with Git issues. So there, were, I had a Git issue for an open source repository that I maintained, and I went on Gitcoin, and, and I had to install MetaMask, which is a browser extension that allows you to integrate crypto into whatever you're doing on the internet. And setting up MetaMask was annoying and weird and did not feel like a web 2.0 experience. It felt like something else. Like I didn't know what the heck this thing was, MetaMask. And it involved me like doing something with an Ethereum wallet. I think I had the Ethereum wallet set up before and I didn't have to set it up when I was doing MetaMask. But MetaMask was was a great onboarding experience, I think, relative to, to some other crypto tools. It was like still a pretty good experience. I made it through the whole Gitcoin thing. I I eventually had my bounty, you know, awarded to somebody. Somebody actually did like claim it, but the whole UX of the thing, I was like, it was arduous. And you know, I think about somebody else with with much lower tolerance for internet pain or for technical pain. They would have given up at step one in the funnel, and I made it through step thirty-five in the Gitcoin, MetaMask, Ethereum funnel. And this is like this is like a good experience on you know using Ethereum. At least that was my you know um, perception of it a year and a half ago when I when I did this Gitcoin issue. And so thinking about that, like thinking through, okay, what actually are I'm sure you've thought more about this than I have, but 
like the actual hurdles of UX that need to be gone through to accommodate the average user, one of the earlier hurdles is this wallet thing. Because I'm sure there are plenty of users who have just turned away when they're like, oh my God, what is this wallet address thing? I've never seen anything like that. It looks like a virus. I'm not going to even highlight it because it's a virus. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So user education, I believe, is we shouldn't like downplay the, the task before us. I believe that we did have probably a good amount of user education when the web first came out. Like I remember CompuServe when I was a kid, like it had the internet and like it was a it was a strange place, but I believe it, at some point people will will develop the the product and uh, will develop the products and tools to make it really easy for people to what create their mnemonic. So some of you are probably familiar with the mnemonic. It's like a string of words that's essentially just entropy that is impossible to guess, and that's basically your key. That's your sovereignty. That's what makes you. That's what makes your data different from Facebook. Uh, Facebook, they've got all the keys to all of your data, and so there is some pain with basically creating a twenty-four word like string, right? But the benefits are huge, and I believe that we can create products that will make it easier for people to not only create the mnemonic and store it, but um, but yeah, I've I've just got I've got a vision of like. And if anyone is listening, please do this. But like a vision of some product where you like you go on the internet and you click buy with Apple Pay and they send you like a label printer that gets to your house and you like push a couple buttons to create some entropy and it just prints out a label of 24 words, which is your mnemonic string. And then it, it has like a nice box that you can put it in and you put it in your closet and then there's your sovereign identity right there. You can put it in a bank vault if you want, but it's, you know, it's a big shiny box and it kind of like is commensurate with the value that it provides to you. You want to keep it safe. You don't want to share it. And yeah, you definitely don't want it to leak. But when you have this like germ of entropy, like I believe money is the, is the initial thing. If you follow along with like the, the broader implications of this like sovereign identity, like, you can use this key to encode anything. You could encode like you can use this to unlock your accounts on distributed services. You can use it to like you could theoretically use it for like a distributed social network or something like that. And when you have this when you have this key, like the application developer can never see your they can never unlock your data. You're the only person that can. They just create the product. So like when will we get to a world where none of the application developers know what their users' data is? I think that's kind of the end, the end play here. The start is obvious. It's money. It's the most compact data structure. So it was, uh, it was, it was required to prevent civil attacks. It was the first thing. I believe distributed name services are next. And then just potentially the entire application layer can become, you know, be a target for like becoming open source. So like when we have products that are, the UX is like well-known and it doesn't take a lot of fast-moving product experimentation, I believe there will be a long-term forcing function to create open-source versions of these products. So like like an open-source Twitter or something like that, they basically have like a, you know, a distributed microblogging platform. Like since something is open and belongs to everyone, you won't have the bandwidth to like experiment a lot uh, because there's, there's a lot of 
difficulty in like running that past a community and being like, I propose like changing this button or adding a feature or something like that. If you have to get all of the participants to like vote or something like that to accept a change, you'll be you'll be a little bit more slow moving. We can kind of draw parallels to like the open source uh, operating system world early on. I, I kind of think about like Windows as being first. They were the the fast mover. They um, they got to market. Their motto was a computer on every desk. They did that amazingly, and um, they got they got Windows to every desktop. Uh, they created this awesome platform for developing applications. I'm not sure how much it was appreciated that they did that, but like you could create a, a Visual Basic app, boom, it could be on all these desktops. Um, so they were first, in my opinion, kind of like the second wave is like. Yes, but we want it to be open and we want it to be better. We want it to be trustless. Uh, so I believe for consumer that was, you know, Macintosh, they were largely built on Unix. So you, a lot of, so, you know, all your, all your like Linux commands work in the bash and stuff like that. But there were some problems with like, we have to like produce hardware in China and stuff like that. So it, I think it still needed to be sponsored by a, a kind of a corporate entity. But yeah, I do believe there's like a long-term forcing function to apply kind of like the trust in the warm fuzzies to stuff that we use every day in the application layer. So like Facebook and Twitter and like banking and like obviously name services, money. I don't know. Who knows? There might be like someday there might be an open source Uber or something like that. Who knows? But once the protocols get quicker and like the UX hurdles are solved, like just imagine what will happen. Like I think it's incumbent on us as engineers to like think of the next cool thing that we can build in web three and you know experiment and make it happen so isn't it amazing how many engineers there are that still quote unquote don't believe in crypto where they'll they'll just say ah i'm skeptical i'm a crypto skeptic you're like well but you understand that this does allow this trusted system it allows this self-sovereign identity there's it's it's a set of computer science primitives that were put together to invent something. And they'd be like, yeah, I'm skeptical. Like, no, 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 but but do you you get it? Like, this is like a building block. This is like somebody said, here's the internet browser. And I get the internet browser is a set of things that were put together that existed previously, but the internet browser is wholly new as a new artifact. That's what we've done with crypto. This is a building block. People are going to do crazy stuff with it. And it's just amazing that there's still um like kind of universals like like universal skepticism i think it why do you think that is do you think that's willful skepticism are people just like are are there some people who feel like they missed out and so their way of coping with missing out is to just basically reject the idea that crypto is actually a real important building block it's possible. I think. I think there is value in in the criticizers. The certainly is there a bear? Is there the, what's the bear? What's what's the twenty nineteen bear case for crypto? I think the UX is the biggest hurdle. Uh, like yeah, what, the the bear case is like a web two, like pay like PayPal, re, re, like remains supreme because they're attached to the email address. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's perfectly valid to like respect the advantage that ha- PayPal has in user experience right now. I do believe that we should take those, we should take all I like, I think Elon talks about like really learning a lot from his critics. I think in crypto, we can really learn a lot from our, our critics as well. Even if they're like 
perennial haters like and there's there's certainly a fair amount of that within the community i've never really understood it because i always came from like the developer community like the entrepreneurial community we make we make cool stuff and like you know we improve people's we improve things we improve experiences we we're not playing a zero-sum game like that's one of my few criticisms of the show uh, Silicon Valley. I understand you need a plot, but I, it seems to have kind of this like zero sum. Yes. Like sometimes they hate on other company. Like they hate on That's the. That's why I stopped watching it. They hate on the pizza company in the show because it's like it's a kind of silly idea. It's like an app that delivers pizza. Like fine, but like like just it, as someone who's lived in Silicon Valley for six years and like has always built products. I've never really gotten that vibe in the community. Like people resent others. Like everyone is, there's like more than enough room for everyone to create something awesome and improve the, the world in kind of a perpetual way. Um, so I'd say like be, 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 be respectful of the, the critics, like engage with them. They, they're actually helpful. And I think in a long enough timeline, probably they might be using your stuff in the future. Like, can you imagine someone going around and telling people like, like computers are going to be the the big thing, like operating systems and like like spreadsheets? Spreadsheets are were I guess like V one of like distributed or like V one of applications. How can we like use spreadsheets? They probably seem completely crazy because people had been people had been organizing their business around like IBM paper based workflows. Like the Xerox machine was like this great innovation in um, like how business workflows go. And I, I actually have like some respect for people for like the way people did business back in the day, like based on paper. We're so used to like having our world be run on computers and servers and computers and phones based run on applications and on top of that. But like if you didn't have access to any of those things, how would you run a business? <laughs> How would you like the mailroom? You've got the mailroom. You don't have routers. You have the mailroom. <laughs> I don't understand how that works at all. <laughs> it has, there's like some intelligence in how all this stuff ran, but it was a, I don't know. Maybe I can sit down with someone and like hear about the good old, you know, the good old days of like, how did they run general motors based on, how did you like validate that people actually did things? How did you have like credit and how did you like do financial transfers and stuff? you probably seen catch me if you can apparently a, a guy was just running around the country making blank ch- like <laughs> printing fake checks right. <laughs> yeah i'm sure there were skeptics back then as well but you know they're they're part of the fun i you know i love the critics uh so so there is something called the ethereum name service this is this was described in the early ethereum discussions and then it has come to fruition what is ENS? How does it compare to DNS? So it's ENS, like we like we talked about. It's based. It creates a uh, an address that lets you tell people about, and they can send money to. So people can use our our service ETHSimple to basically do the perform the auctions required to buy an address. It'll do it automatically. You just basically create it once, and you can get a domain. You can also do things like speculate on uh, .eth domains if you were like if you draw comparisons to like the early days of the .com system. I've heard so many people say like I should have bought like you know apartments.com in like 1996. Well, this might be your chance to buy some interesting domains and you know learn about learn about crypto at the same time. But um, yeah, they created 
part of the original vision was to create ENS and ENS is basically a smart contract that just has a key value store. It's like um, these addresses are belonged. These domains are belong are owned by these addresses and you can resolve other things to it. And ENS is completely on chain. So there's, uh, there's basically no like technology gap between um, your server or like um, yeah, your, your address in the domain system. It is a smart contract itself. It exists entirely in Ethereum. And there are some interesting extrapolations to that. Uh, but DNS is a little bit separate from like, you know, the servers that they, that they, that applications run on. So like your, you know, your server could be at a data farm. It could be in your house and uh, DNS run separately. And there's just, there's a lot of infrastructure in DNS that's been built up over the years, email. DNS is a very pure, trustless crypto domain system. Um, your address can't be revoked and potentially you can you can purchase the address in near perpetuity in the future, which I think is very cool. One thing I think, you know, I think is really interesting about all of this uh, crypto um, development is like the securitization of DevOps. Like what is a world like where you can you can like prepay for hosting for like a hundred years or something like that. Like what are the, what are the creative consequences of that? Um, if, uh, if I want to create like a memorial website for a loved one that's passed away, potentially I could do that. Like before I, like I host my blog on Amazon, uh, web services in S3 and I created an account to host my blog and I think it charges like 53 cents a month or something like that. So like, Every two years, my credit card will expire and I'll have to go and like, and I'll get like three warnings from Amazon. Like we're like, you need to update your credit card grease because your 53 cents wasn't billing. So I'm like, fine, I got to go remember what that account was and like log in and add some credit card. And there's no way to like prepay. I can't put like 10 bucks in for it to just run. Right. Um, so as we've got, you know, amazing performance and everything, but like, what's it like in a world where I can say like, I want to put my asset on, I want to put it on IPFS and, or, and pay with it for Filecoin, like near perpetuity. I want to point my Ethereum domain to it so people can, they can view my domain and resolve the asset completely on chain. So there's no servers required. There's no self-managed servers required. How cool is that when you can like make a product, publish it and just go completely hands off and not have to think about DevOps. I think that's fascinating and like we're just building the building blocks right now so what is that going to look like when people actually start building on that are there going to be like hedge funds that like trade on like hosting and like devops like like i i believe there are some hedge funds that do interesting things like they'll like buy an oil tanker full full of petroleum and park it and like wait a couple months for like the prices to go up or something like that there's like interesting arbitrages so like I don't know, it's it's a crazy chaotic, crazy chaotic world right now. I'm really curious as, as to see how it all plays out. But yeah, the securitization I think is going to be really interesting. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Totally agree on that bright future. If these some of these, uh, or I guess we should say, when these primitives uh, get solved, when the UX issues get ironed out. DNS. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of. I have a lot of annoyances with DNS. Like when I buy a domain, the experience that I get from provider to provider is highly variable. Like I buy my domains from Google Domains now. 
Google Domains is pretty good. I like Google Domains a lot. I don't actually don't have a lot of complaints about that. But the previous one, previous providers I've used, who I will not name because they're just so bad and so egregious with what they do, I don't even understand. Why do they charge me so much? Like I pay, what is it, $12 a month or $12 a year or something? Like depending on, you know, how aggressively they're charging you. What are they charging me for? When I like when I go to to a domain provider and I'm buying a domain, I want to buy jeffsawesomepodcast.com. Why does the experience and the price vary so much from to provider to provider? What are they actually giving me? Yeah, I think it's there's a lot of like web2 just incentives at play there. There's like you can go with an, a registrar that has a huge marketing budget. It's kind of like Kind of like Wells Fargo, and I'll explain in a second. But like, if they have to buy a bunch of ads to get you to convert to become a user, then they're gonna have to make they're gonna have to make that margin somehow, and they end up charging you for it. I think GoDaddy or not GoDaddy. I think uh, Google has other incentives, so they want to like yeah, they maybe they just want you to be incorporated. Maybe they're just tiring themselves of like paying for domains. I mean, they've got Google Fiber, so. Obviously, they, they've got some incentive to just make computing easier. I think an interesting thing about these distributed domain services is like they're all at cost. It's kind of like you don't pay for Linux. Like it's an open standard that belongs to the world. It belongs to everyone, right? So potentially this is going to be something that you, you don't have to. And there's, there's also, and I'm not, I'm not the person of record for this, but there's like an interesting backstory as to how the DNS system developed. There was like, I can and VeriSign and VeriSign, and I'm 100% not the final authority on this, but I believe that they got a contract from uh, the government to operate like the core registry for the .com system and the .net and .org and a couple others, I believe. And so they basically maintain this database of like, you know, who owns what domains and what the name service name, uh, name server is. They have like this no bid contract, I believe, something like that. And I believe it's like they get like seven fifty per domain per year for the privilege of maintaining this database, with there being no competition for like bidding to do this. There's all kinds of like crazy. I can gets a little bit, but they're not they're not quite as much as Verisign. Uh, Verisign doesn't manage all the domains, so you get some cheaper ones like .info. Yeah, there's some interesting history behind all of this. <laughs> I do believe that's one of the forcing functions for crypto domain services to come to the fore. Is like there's just there's there's not going to be nearly as much rent just because the infrastructure is already built. Like we know the data structures. If you want to create a, a name service that emulates the existing domain system, like there's not a lot of novel research that you have to do, and so we'll see. I think like when you build an entire business based around a single string that's in a name service, like imagine you're a company. Your Facebook.com, like if they revoked Facebook.com or something, you'd be, you know, you'd be having a very bad time. So like, don't you want... Because like even Facebook is beholden to VeriSign or whoever actually controls that database. Yeah. So why wouldn't developers want like an open source trustless thing to manage their, their reputation and their identity? Like, yeah, I think, I think a lot of like DevOps people and developers have voted with their feet that they end up using like Ubuntu for their servers and they end up using Linux and Linux commands on Mac to do development. 
we'll see how it plays out, but I believe that there's a big incentive for people to uh, to vote with their feet for these distributed domain services um, like DNS and Handshake. So DNS is, we don't have to go into it in detail, but it's something like I go to a DNS a host hosting provider and uh, enter in the domain that I want to buy, and they said, okay, the domain is available, and it's $12, and then they register it for me, and they have some back-end stuff, and I guess they're talking to ICANN or VeriSign or whatever else happens on the back-end when you register a domain that has not been taken by anybody, and, and that's great. We don't need to go into that. When somebody has taken the domain before and they own it, you can ask them, you can send an email, you can look up the who is of who the per, of who owns that domain, who owns softwareengineeringdaily.com. You can send them an email like, hey, can I buy this from you? And you can figure out a transaction for that. And then there are some, some systems where you can actually set up auctions for these kinds of domains. But I think it, from what you've said, it sounds like in Ethereum, there's an auction system built in at a lower level for the, these domains. Can you contrast, if we're talking about highly competitive or even just marginally competitive domain names, how does the price for a competitive domain name and how does the person who actually buys that domain name on Ethereum, how does that vary between the ENS and the DNS system? Yeah, so DNS is a first come first serve thing. There's no auctions. The reason ENS has auctions is it was basically created uh, to manage the land rush that happens when um, a domain system gets released. So like when it initially comes out, people are going to rush to buy all of the valuable domains. I think there's like 250,000 domains or something like that registered in ENS right now. They created the auction system to make those domains be priced fairly. Now, part of the development process of ENS is there's an initial version of ENS, which I guess it has like an eight, 18th month or two years, something like that, kind of like initial period where they let people buy the seven characters or more domains. So like the longer domains, um, they, put, they wanted to put it out there, kind of like wait for feedback, make sure they have all of the intel they want before they go to the permanent version. Now, the permanent version should come out this year where there will be no more auctions. It'll be instant buys. So that the five-day auction thing will go away and you can buy the domain instantly. In terms of like the second layer markets, like you know when you go to GoDaddy and you type in a name and it's like, this is for sale, there is a notion of that in ENS. I think the tooling for it to like get pervasive will come along, but it like there's been tooling created to attach domains to ERC721 tokens, which are non-fungible tokens like CryptoKitties, and other like unique items. So people can buy domains, stick it in a 721 uh, token and let it be exposed by all of the 721 non-fungible markets. So like potentially you could find a domain in like, you could find it in every resale market, like every crypto domain resale market without like, like having asked for permission, which I think is pretty cool. There's something to be said for like developer economics for all these standards. So like ERC-20 tokens, ERC-721, ERC I'm sure there's stuff for other protocols. I think that's one of the big features of crypto, in my opinion, is like being able to rally everyone around a single standard so you can have interoperability and you can basically have permissionless development. There's this interesting project called Crypto Dragons. So have you heard of CryptoKitties? So I believe it's a Chinese project. It's called Crypto Dragons. And you grow your dragons by f- cryptographically feeding them crypto kitties. So the dragons 
The dragons have to actually eat these crypto kitties to like grow. You have to provably destroy the crypto kitties. Wow. And this is built on top of crypto kitties without permission from anyone. That's brilliant. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so ETH Simple, let's talk about the company that you're building. Explain what ETH Simple does for people. So ETH Simple is kind of our foray into uh, making crypto user experience really our goal is to make it better than um, like web 2 ux and uh, yeah basically what we do is you log into our site use right now you use metamask in like the web 3 conventions you query our endpoint and we manage all the subsequent auction and configuration events to create your domain for you so norm- normally you'd have to like do a few queries over a five day period. And then when you win, you've got to like a point to a resolver contract and like, you know, set up a few other things. We do all those queries for you. So basically you just have to query once. And then at the end of the pe- time period, you have your domain. So you can potentially hop on simple. Think of like, I don't know, like a dozen domains or something and just, you know, query them all and you'll have, you'll have a nice little portfolio going at the end of the, you know, at the end of the time period. Yeah, just making crypto fun. So, okay, how does that purchasing experience, if I want to buy Ethereum domains, what does that experience look like relative to the experience off of ETH Simple or or on another Ethereum registrar? Yeah, it's actually maybe you can just define what what is an ENS registrar or Ethereum registrar. It's a little bit funny because they call the actual registrar contract a registrar. And then we also kind of call ourselves a registrar. So like, is like GoDaddy a registrar and Core DNS a registrar if you're drawing those parallels? Like pre-ETH simple, a lot of Ethereum people went through this problem. ENS comes out, you want to buy some domains. You have to hop on and you have to query a registrar. You have to query the core registrar contract you have to start an auction, submit a bid. You have to follow up three days later and reveal your bid. So like you have to save like a JSON blob of like your hash and your entropy and like the string pointing your domain and all this stuff. Then two days after that, you have to re- you have to like finalize your bid and you have to like create a resolver and point all these things to it. It was a big pain. You had to be a borderline developer to do it. Even if you are a developer, you don't have time to be going around querying smart contracts over a five-day period, it's just impractical. I think 50%, it was like 40 or 50% of auctions were just never revealed after the fact. So like that might indicate that people were creating bids and just forgetting about them just because they forgot or they're on vacation or something. So I I wasn't really um, buying domains at the time that DNS was new, but I assume that there were some user experience problems with buying DNS domains as well. Um, so yeah, we just, we just make it super easy and fun. We've got some really cool stuff in the, the pipeline coming out. We want to make it really easy to, you know, start publishing content and just like have fun and play with crypto. And like, we want to make it easier to make crypto corrupt, easier to make crypto websites on like web three than web two. So like, it's actually still kind of a pain in this day and age to make, a website and like on, on DNS, you've got to like go to a registrar or a hosting service buy FTP. Like you have to go to go to a, like your DNS manager and like point it to an A record. It was actually kind of a, like a learning curve. It's not intuitive as to like 
what an A record or like a C name is. So potentially like crypto could be even easier than like the DNS system. That's part of our goal just to make it fun for people. Yeah, publish them websites on IPFS or, you know, like Swarm or one of the distributed asset serving protocols that are coming out and just like, yeah, have have fun with it. I am kind of, I'm thinking like maybe someone might want to make like a memorial service that lets people publish websites for like, you know, a hundred years or something like that. Send me an email. We can talk Brian at ethsimple.com. Uh, I think, I think it'd be really cool. The internet tombstone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause like potentially, you know, a static website isn't going to be a huge amount of like uh, storage. Uh, so why not? Well, what you're describing about the internet still being too hard to use, just like setting up a website being still too hard to use. That's, I mean, you see this in the growth and growth of the Squarespace of the world, the Wixes of the world. Wix.com sponsors this show, full disclosure. And when they first started sponsoring us, I was like, why would you market Wix to software engineers? Software engineers can build their own websites. But I think what I realized is like, first of all, probably there are some software engineers who just don't want to tell anybody, but they don't know how to set up a website. Like there's a lot of steps in setting up a website. You could be a really good developer. You could know Spring backwards and forwards, or maybe you're really good at COBOL. You have no idea how to set up a website. Like, and even if you follow all the the how-to tips and Stack Overflow or WikiHow's or whatever, it's still going to be hard for you. And so it just, and then you know the you see, but you do see see simplified developer tools too, like things like Firebase or or other other things that are a little at least lower level than than a Wix or a WordPress.com or a Squarespace but yeah I mean I can I can imagine looking at that space from your point of view and saying okay it took the regular internet I shouldn't say the regular internet but web 2.0 this long to get to the point where we have Squarespace and Wix and it's you know those are giant markets and they're growing markets what would the Squarespace or Wix or WordPress experience be for an Ethereum? Why do we need that for Ethereum? And why would it be different? Why would it be any different? Why wouldn't the Squarespace of Web 3.0 just be Squarespace? Yeah, I mean, I think the goal is to let people publish their own content and just yeah, have it be outright owned by them. I kind of like remember a day when blogs were big. I do have like a, a romantic longing for this time because like there's a little small point in time where like basically only nerds could make websites. So it was kind of great for people like us. You'd have like your RSS reader and you like you'd like have all these blogs that were set up and um, like Facebook and these Web2 came, companies came along and let you create dynamic websites without knowing how to like code or do DevOps. And I think that was the big inflection point. We basically want to let people create their own their own content with their own private keys and make it easier than like, you know, using a Facebook site or something like that. So like if if we have anything to do with it, what happened to the internet after like Twitter and Facebook came out won't happen to crypto. We want we want everyone to have total control and not to like rely on third-party services. So like if you got a blog publishing tool and there's still kind of like a moat to use to publish crypto sites, like I would say that's not really that's not really achieving the vision of like self-sovereignty and letting people, you know, own their own content. Like the way we design our site, there's no analytics, there's no tracking, it's a static site. We want to know as little about people as possible and it follows the convention of like like web three injection convention. So like, it's kind of interesting how, and I, I can 
maybe like explain this a little bit if you're new to crypto development. How it works right now is there's something called MetaMask and there's a, a similar thing for uh, Lightning. It's a browser extension and injects Web3 into every website. So if you develop a crypto site... Web3.js. Yeah, Web3.js, yeah. And so, yeah, it injects that in the site. And so if you develop a dApp, you basically say like, is web3.js present in this tab? If it is, then they've got MetaMask or they've got the Lightning tool or whatever, and you can interact with that person's identity, but that's provided by them. So you basically, you know, you create a tool, you add some conventions around like logging in and out and stuff like that, like some UI, and um, you let people interact with your product based on their identity that's brought by Web3. And you can see things like there's like a list of accounts and you can like, query to submit a transaction you basically have all the dynamism of like a client side javascript app with with their ethereum identity baked in so you see you see a lot of like react development in the ethereum community for that reason if you've got a fully trustless uh dap it's just javascript and client side code only you can see 100 percent what's in the code Anyone can take it and they can put it on their own CDN or they can run it locally and it'll have the exact same behavior. So you're just trusting the JavaScript code in front of you that you can 100% read and audit and the backend, the blockchain on the backend that you can 100% read and see what's going on. And there's no shadowy private servers on the backend that you have to trust. And no, that's pretty, pretty you, cool. You're suggesting a lot of different things that actually are significantly different than Web 2 and that suggest that the Squarespace of crypto might not be the Squarespace of Web 2.0. Uh, things like identity as a core. If you, can, if you can have expectations around how to interact with a user's identity, and it's not their Google identity or their Facebook identity, it's them. It's their identity that they are comfortable with. Because all of us, I, I love Google, but I'm not comfortable with Google managing my identity. I mean, that's I have to do it, but I'm not super comfortable with it. I can see a path to crypto actually having an identity system that I'm comfortable with. You have the identity system. You have payments being closely integrated. And all the abstractions that you could build on top of the expectation of payments and the expectation of payments and identity... And then you have, you know, just this lower level infrastructure stuff like ENS and just all the random crypto lower level stuff that has tons of churn right now, but is going to develop in its own way. You take all that together, you've got higher level components and lower level components that are different than Web 2.0, in addition to all of the stuff in Web 2.0. That's a totally different stack. And so you're looking at that stack and you're saying, that's where I want to play. That's where the puck is headed. And today you're focusing on domain registration, but the vision is to simplify that whole stack and be a trusted, simple party to be able to deal with for developers or other people potentially who want to build or invest in that stack. And fun. And fun. Right. Okay. Ross Ulrich, the creator of the Silk Road, went to our high school. You so you and I went to high school together. You're one of the first people I ever worked for. Ro so Ross 
uh, I think about Austin sometimes. Austin as a tech city. A tech city. So you and I both both grew up in Austin, and we ended up moving out here to Silicon Valley. Austin is a great tech city, but it there is a difference in entrepreneurship between Austin and Silicon Valley. Where if you if you were to try to name off the best entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, it would take you thirteen hours to to name all the the fantastic entrepreneurs that have come out of here. If you're talking about Austin, there are plenty of great entrepreneurs, but they don't have the same scope. They don't have the same scale to their ambitions, except maybe somebody like Michael Dell, uh, and that's fine. Like uh, that's not a value judgment on them. But when we, when you just look at the size of the business and the impact of businesses that people from Austin have built, it's you know it's it's just different than than Silicon Valley. But Ross, who went to our high school, the vision for the Silk Road, I think, was pretty big and pretty ambitious. Is Ross Ulrich the most successful entrepreneur to come out of Austin in the last 10 years? Wow. If you value the current stake of his Bitcoins confiscated by the government, (laughs) I don't even know. What are you? How many billions of dollars is that? I have no idea. Is it billions? I don't know. It has. I don't know. It's a lot. I don't even know. They, they might have auctioned them off at this point and they might have been better off just they might have been better off just holding them bitcoins for like the next 20 years or something but yeah geez ross um did you how well did you know him i had some mutual friends with him i never met him in person i was supposed to go to i was supposed to meet up with him once in san francisco incidentally someone invited me to a thing he was at and i didn't end up going but um, he was uh, apprehended soon after that. So, were you going to meet at a library? <laughs> no, <laughs> I haven't had time to like look into the Ross Ulrich legal case. Uh, there's there are, there are people with way more knowledge on it. Yeah. Than I I know what I don't know, and like you know, I'm sure you'd have to sit there for like a week and just review all the documents and knowledge that went around that case. Yeah. Um, I don't know. He seemed like everyone says he seemed like a very nice person. Uh, so I don't know. Well, is it like isn't his kind of his last his last kind of appeal to get a presidential pardon or something like I that? I don't know. I'm not up to date on it. Um, yeah, he did end up moving to San Francisco at some point. But uh, I do think it's interesting. Like crypto kind of started out with this like Silk Road kind of thing, and now it's like people don't even like talk or think about that anymore it's just like this obvious like global monetary system but it started out like this people were mining bitcoins in their house on their like on their towers and they would actually like you know they would like mine on their on their computer and actually end up making like 30 grand or something like that when the price went up Um, i thought that was pretty interesting Uh, but uh well we've got two super bowl Winning quarterbacks coming out of Westlake. Oh, that's true. That's <laughs> or, entrepreneurial. Aren't they actually playing each other? Are they both playing in the Super Bowl? Do I, have that I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, so we we did, we did uh, football really well at Westlake, and yeah. uh, I guess we did um, dark net markets also well. Yeah. <laughs> I see some bull signals for Austin. There's like a giant building downtown with a Google logo on it now. Have you oh, seen yeah, this? Oh yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I don't know. Maybe there's like. You know, maybe there's like a um, tech diaspora out of the Bay Area. Who, who really knows? I don't have the macro data. Isn't that adverse selection for like epic entrepreneurship? Yeah. I'm not maybe not. <laughs> maybe I've, I've had too much Kool-Aid. I think I've probably had too much Kool-Aid. Cause I, and I also think... It's just bigger here. It's a bigger ecosystem. Bigger. Like when you... It's a law of averages. When you have a bigger 
pool of talent to choose from, you're going to have more crazy outliers. So maybe per capita tech entrepreneurs in other areas are, you know, aberrationally high. Who really knows? It could be lower. I don't have the data, but like, that's just the nature of like the accretive value of large numbers of people in a single focus getting in the same place. It's like, if you want to do like fashion or something, you go to New York City. That's just where it is. You can try to do it in other places, but you're never going to quite you're never going to quite get to that level. And I think that's what we kind of did. I think a lot of people go to Silicon Valley and do their quote unquote masters in tech. Here, you just you go and you work for you know a medium sized company. You do your your daily stands. You do your um, you do your Kanban board. You do pull requests. You do uh, you learn the best practices, and it it you know it really does it really does help because you can catch up with like two decades of best practices in like a year or two, and uh, you could potentially use that and move outside of the Bay Area, and like you can make a great product and like never have to really like have a salary again. Like uh, lots of people have done that in Austin, like Noah Kagan. There's a lot of great examples of that. I love I love Austin. I love Austin too. I feel so much better when I go to Austin and come back here. It just makes it kind of like centers things for me. Like, why are we doing all this? You know. Well, I think it'll change. Like me personally, I'm like I'm. I've been looking really hard, but I don't see anything here that is not replicable by Austin. I think Austin can replicate it. I think it'll get what we what we have here of value will get recreated in Austin. This is this topic has been litigated on like why to come here. You know, so many people have talked about it. I don't need to talk about it in this in this episode, but. Uh, there are a lot of good reasons to come here right now if you are an entrepreneur, but I do think that it's it's going to change a lot. I could easily see myself, you know, moving back to Austin. I've thought about this a lot, but I think there there was some cultural thing with Austin where you like... So I think it's getting easier and easier to build a remote workforce. It's also getting easier and easier to build a great company with a smaller team. So like these pressures make it easier and easier to build a company in a place like Austin and have that company be really successful, really valuable. Yeah, I have a theory about I have a theory about the, the macro forces that contributed to the Bay Area the last decade, decade and a half. This is just a theory, but like when we were we were kids, Enron happened, right? Like there was actually, there were a lot of crazy tech companies in Austin when we were kids. There was like AMD, there was right. Dell. Like I remember. Motive, here, I think. Yeah. Or, or Trilogy or something. Motorola was big there. And I remember a lot of the, like the, the grownups talking about like their tech stocks and it was really exciting and interesting. And I think right. it was one of the germs for me. But Enron happened and Congress created Sarbanes-Oxley, which made compliance for public companies really kind of onerous, according to uh, some CEOs. So like if you say, you've mentioned to someone that you had a good day at work and they go and buy stock, then you could potentially be liable for insider trading is what I've heard. So it made it super onerous to like go public. There's tons of compliance costs. So people aren't going public anymore like what is what is uber's valuation like 70 billion or something like that they're still private i feel like the access to finance access to smart finance is one of the best things that silicon has competitively so like if crypto can actually kind of liberate smaller companies from like those prohibitive costs that could potentially be a big bull case for cities like austin if you're like I'm going to create a security token that's a claim of ownership for a software project. Everyone who owns a token will get a proportionate share of the revenue. 
So if I own 1% of the tokens, I get 1% of the revenue and I can vote. And it's basically a distributed ownership of a company. If it ends up being, you know, if all the legality is worked out and it ends up being straightforward in the United States, that could be huge for other ecosystems. So like, say you're like a four person company in Austin, if you can create a compelling case and create a security token around your project in Austin and raise like 2 million bucks or something, you can work for a long time on that in Austin. <laughs> like I remember I had a one bed for 750 right next to the river in Austin when I lived there. It was amazing. <laughs> I don't want to say when I'm paying for rent in San Francisco, but like, <laughs> like if you can just sit there and experiment on your product for like four years, you're going to, you're going to hit something. You're going to get some kind of traction. Uh, so there's a lot of different cases for crypto. But what, what were you saying before? My thesis around Austin is more of a there's a there's cultural issues at play that lead to I can't, I don't want to talk about it too much because it's like it gets into pol- like it basically becomes political. But um, you know, I just when I went to when I was going to UT, there's something about just like Austin the Austin coffee shops. Like you go into an Austin coffee shop and just like let's just chill and like talk to each other and and here it's like let's go to a coffee shop and talk business and talk about how we can help each other. And like those are extremes, right? Like obviously there's a gradient and you know, it's, you go to in Austin, you go to a coffee shop and you do talk to people about business. And in Silicon Valley, you might go to a coffee shop as a date or, you know, a ca- total casual conversation. But in Austin there was just, you know, I got the sense there's a lot of people just anyway, I I'm not going to it's a sense of complacency, and I've talked about this on in on previous episodes. But I think it's changing. I think people are like I think that the the whole startup mentality, the startup scene, I think Y Combinator has been really great for this. Just showing people that there are some cool benefits to like aligning yourself as a creative business person and saying I want to build something, I want it to make money, I want to have an impact. Like having this sort of agency instead of this kind of apathetic malaise that sometimes is cheered in Austin, and I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think there's like there are you know times and places when people can be malaise and 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 just chill out and like just reflect on the world or be philosophical or lounge around or you know play guitar on the street or whatever like that's all great but just that the kind of why combinator the perspective that i just described is less was less well represented in Austin at least when I left and I was really glad to get away from the lack of it but I you got to go in a while so I I want to I want to kind of wrap this up give me your condensed crypto thesis in like one or two minutes tell me how the world of cryptocurrencies will evolve in the next couple of years wow well you they say like uh it's wise to know what you don't know there's definitely a lot of unknowns in crypto like we talked about before, there's a huge forcing function for uh, making things easy. That's what I focus on. There's going to be a lot of development in scaling. If we can get transactions like you know sub five seconds or something like that, the UX will be really good. My kind of contrarian perspective, or not contrarian, but less well uh, accepted perspective is that there's going to be the open sourcing of the application layer on top of like the the protocol layer, which is the actual currencies themselves. I believe we're going to have this big force to like create uh, open applications and like the name, there's going to be a notion of like a decentralized application stack. So if you can have a fully decentralized product that's totally auditable, everyone's going to gravitate towards it. Like you get that, 
there's a feeling you get when you you go to like view a library a library's documentation or some um, open source product maybe there's a german word for this it's not it doesn't have like the sexiest marketing page ever but it's completely open and you can tell there's no profit incentive really in it it's just some nerds that makes that like maintain a library and there's just like this feeling of credibility and trust that you get and you pick that over maybe like a slightly slicker closed source thing and i feel like that force can happen and will happen to the application layer which hasn't really been possible before distributed ledgers because there was just no there was no devops method to maintain a distributed application like like before crypto before crypto how were you going to like operate a, like a rail server for a distributed app is there any way are you going to like you're going to like open like an Amazon Web Services account and like let people crowdfund it or something, let random people do pull requests on it and direct like the C name records. No, that just wasn't plausible. But now with like the securitization of DevOps and like stuff like IPFS, distributed asset stores that will just that will store the front end for your code. This is totally possible. And um, yeah, I think this is something that you should keep uh, you can keep your eye on. Non-fungible tokens, overhyped or underhyped? Short-term overhyped, long-term underhyped. Yeah, when we have conventions for things like ICOing, like apartment buildings and stuff like that, I think these tokens are going to be they're going to be valuable. Uh, like, yeah, if you can put your condo in a token, I will say that long-term the productization of the maintenance of your uh, like mnemonic will be pretty important. Uh, so you don't want you don't want to like lose the key for your condo and then you just like don't own your condo anymore like making this super easy using like uh like partial mutability and like proxy conventions to like have super backups of less common important stuff but like doing simple things with your address making that easier i think that will come along i think there's another thing there's another component which is like how do you maintain off-chain ownership of uh, on-chain assets so like if you've got if you've got a condo or something like that and you manage ownership online how do you connect to that with the legal system of managing property rights in a real world thing like in a conventional legal system some people are trying that with real estate and like similar to how like protocols and i you know tcp ip come along to be these big conventions they're we have the same thing in legal documents. So like the safe is a big legal document for fundraising. I think there will be conventions for like allocating ownership of off-chain things to on-chain contracts. So like maybe there will be some document that says like, like the owners of this token own this apartment building. If you own 20% of the tokens, then you get 20% of the rent every month. And anyone from the world, from all over the world can like buy a piece of this apartment building and potentially get rent from it. And like, you don't have to be a, like an American citizen or like know the legal system to like claim, have a, a claim in a low risk asset, like an apartment building and, and generate returns for that. So that's another piece of creative chaos. Like how does the fractal of crypto spread to everything like a, like the legal system is now. When you have programmable programmable money, what are the consequences of that? 
Okay, last question. So I remember when we were working together at Soul Mobile, there was a time where we walked to coffee, and this was the first time I remember, I can remember, talking to anybody about crypto. We were having some conversation. You were telling me about the Bitcoin white paper, and I was like, yeah, I don't care about that. Like, I'm studying for computer science classes right now, and we don't have anything like that in our computer science classes. I think you're just... I don't care about this. And it took you a while to get into crypto also. Like you you read about it, but you didn't really take it seriously or just didn't didn't get deeply involved with it. Are there any technologies today that outside of crypto, newer technologies where you're looking at them and maybe you're getting the same sensation that you got with crypto in the earlier days where you're saying that thing out of the corner of my eye, it's weird, but it seems like it's going to be really impactful. That's a germ of a thought. I mean, this might be a little cliche, but I think automated vehicles, I think some have have some extrapolating consequences. So like what is a world like where all cars can drive themselves? How does that affect real estate values? How does that affect where people live? Like if you can just plop in a car, you don't have to drive it. Can you potentially live further out if there are like tunnels underground that let you go like 150 miles an hour? Could I live in San Francisco and like, you know, live halfway between here and Sacramento and have like a giant hundred acre ranch or something? Okay, 15 acre ranch. Like when cars drive themselves, like could you potentially have autonomous like pizza sized vehicles that are just driving around in a special purpose way delivering pizzas? I think the consequences of that are really interesting and probably like the real estate people that stand to make money are thinking about this critically right now. Like what is a region of your city that's just slightly too inconvenient to commute to with low property values? Is that a potentially uh, attractive place to uh, begin development at this present moment. So I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm convincing myself to buy a a rental home outside of town and rent it out for 10 years or something like that. Or a house in Round Rock. Yeah. (laughs) North Austin, underpriced, I think. Undervalued. I don't know anything about real estate prices, but thanks for coming on the show. This has been really fun. We should definitely do it again sometime. We have a lot of crypto stuff that we didn't discuss. So yeah, I hope I hope I can kind of have bridged the gap between like application development, like regular engineering that we've all been doing for, you know, the last number of years and like crypto and how these can be connected. I think there really is a space for like web two folks that are really good at product, that make amazing user interfaces, amazing UX. There's a place in crypto for for us now to make really cool products in a trustless way. And I think potentially it could be, you know, fun to dabble around and play with this. You could potentially make some cool stuff in a short period of time. So I encourage you to do that. Keep your eye on the space. When uh, scalability picks up, potentially, yeah, you can be doing some really cool stuff with payments baked in directly. Like when has there been a time when like you could just, every user had money available to query instantly. Like typically in products we're like, okay, it's time for the, credit card conversion hurdle. You got to get them to enter their password in the Stripe box, their their credit card digits and like their address. And it's like what you will get like 10% conversion or something like that. Like we're actually in a world where you can do microtransactions where it doesn't cost 30 cents for a credit card fee. So like, I don't know, I'm thinking about making just some fun pages where it's like, see what's in the mystery box. And they're just like, you query query it for like a cent and see what pops up. <laughs> <out. laughs>
Even one, you could just like put it outside your house and just have like people have to scan a QR code yeah. when they walk past. Yeah, well, like what is and it opens and just whatever is there. Like, what is this important person doing right now? And you can like query it for like ten cents and like. <laughs> The camera will turn on and they like wave or something. <laughs> I think 21.co tried that, right? That wasn't that what 21 or earn.com, but they were just early. Oh, yeah. Wasn't it like you can ask them a question for money? Yeah. Well, it was te- the idea was like micro tasks, but they were starting with the questions. And, and before that, it was like a Raspberry Pi yeah, full noter, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they had a really interesting vision around like put you have a crypto chip in your toaster and it reduces the cost of your toaster and. A lot of stuff like that. They were just very early. Really big vision, very early. That stuff will probably all happen and whatever. There's a great outcome for the guys there since they just, guys and girls, since they just went to Coinbase. Yeah. I mean, if you've got an existing dApp, maybe you could throw in uh, a crypto conversion or donation thing and, you know, you might get some interesting customers out of it. So, I mean, that's another thing we didn't even talk about is like how the companies with existing moats are just going to be able to adopt this new technology and use it in interesting ways. Like how is Apple going to use crypto? How is it Facebook going to use crypto? You know, just, but we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. How is Fiverr going to use crypto? I think that's another interesting one. But Brian, this has been awesome. Let's do it again sometime. Wow.